Some time ago, I was walking our dog in the neighborhood here, and as I often do in those situations, I called a friend. In this case, I called one of my best friends, someone who's had tremendous influence in my life. And as we chatted, and I caught him up on the circumstances in my life and in our church, as he often asks how we're doing here uh, in our family and so forth, I turned the question around, and I said, so, how are you doing? And he said, well... I suppose I should tell you, my wife left me. I said, what in the world are you talking about? This is a godly man who's raised godly children. He's walking with the Lord. What are you talking about? Then this past June, I was at the uh, Southern Baptist Convention meeting in New Orleans, and for one of the sessions, I sat down next to a man who I found out is a pastor in a very small town in Louisiana, a couple hundred people in their entire town. And uh, he mentioned somewhere in, the, in passing in the conversation that his wife had died fairly recently, and later on as the conversation proceeded, uh, I found out that uh, he and his wife had both gotten a stomach bug, He got it first, he passed it on to his wife, and through all the immense uh, trauma to her body, uh, a blood clot moved into her heart and killed her instantly. I asked him a few minutes later, you know, after we all just sat there in silence, because what do you even say after someone tells you a story like that? I said, so who did you call first? And uh, he said, well, my three children, and then my wife's parents, and that was the worst one. Those two men, in those two conversations, but far beyond those conversations, those two men in general are walking wounded. Those two men are in deep distress. And the author of our passage today is also in a distressing situation. It was likely a distressing situation that he was experiencing as he wrote this psalm. We're in Psalm 120, which is on page 484 if you're using one of the Bibles provided. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those home with you. But Psalm 120 is the first of 15 Psalms of Ascent. If you look at the very beginning of Psalm 120, it says a song of ascents. And uh, these 15 Psalms are grouped together in what we call the Psalter, which is just a group of Psalms, which are just songs that are directed to God in the Bible. And uh, I'll be preaching some of these psalms, like this one, by itself, and then other ones at different times. I'll be preaching two psalms, or maybe three at different times. But this will take us a couple of months to work through, I believe, nine sermons for these 15 psalms. These psalms of ascent are the playlist of pilgrims. Maybe you have your own playlist. I'm not going to ask what's on it. You're not going to ask what's on mine. But uh, what's on the playlist of a pilgrim, someone who's marching from one place to another destination, uh, a play, uh, the, the, these pilgrims were listening to and were singing these songs to one another as a way of teaching the next generation what they should be believing about God, how they should be responding to God and to the circumstances that they're in in light of God. And they were bringing perspective to those travelers on the way to the holy city. The Old Testament often commanded, uh, frequently commands 
God's people to go to Jerusalem for various festivals and so forth. And so maybe these were the songs they would sing when they were on their way up to Jerusalem for those festivals. Maybe they're also the songs that God's people would sing and read to each other as they uh, came back to Jerusalem out of exile late in the Old Testament. For us as readers today, on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and uh, ascension, these songs carry us. These songs inspire us and correct us and give us the vocabulary we need to pour out our, our hearts to God on the way to the holy city, on our way to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, as we <clears throat> saw described in Revelation 21 and 22. So our passage today is the first of these psalms, of psalms of ascent. And I'll read the passage aloud, Psalm 120 on page 484. Uh, you'll follow along if you don't mind, and then we'll see this simple invitation here In your distress, turn to the Lord. In your distress, turn to the Lord. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Cater. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. In your distress, turn to the Lord. We all turn somewhere in our distress. Maybe you've identified what that is for yourself, in your own heart, in your own life. Maybe you turn to a therapist or a bowl of ice cream. It seems a lot less expensive. Or perhaps you turn to football, and sometimes football causes more distress. You might turn to Netflix or your journal or scrolling Instagram or TikTok. You might call a friend. But the psalmist here was in distress, and he knew exactly what he needed to do. He turned to the Lord. He knew that's what he had to do. And I want to urge you to, in your distress, turn to the Lord. So what does that look like? This passage tells us. What does it look like to turn to the Lord? First of all, trust him for deliverance. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. Trust the Lord for deliverance. The psalmist here is obviously in difficult circumstances. And verse 1 doesn't tell you what those circumstances are. It just describes it in the most generic way possible. I'm in distress. You should say that too when you're in distress. You should look at the Lord with the eyes of faith and say, Lord, I'm in distress. And let him know that. He already knows. He wants you to pour out your heart to him, though. This author, whoever it is, we don't know. Whatever these circumstances exactly were, we don't know. But what, what can we tell was his distress stemming from? Verse 2 seems to tell us. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Seems like this guy is the object of a smear campaign of some kind. Somebody's lying about him, or misrepresenting him, or falsely accusing him. We don't know who that is, or what exactly the topic of the lie was, but he specifically tells us the problem was somebody with lying lips, somebody with a deceitful tongue. Those two are just the same way of saying, somebody's lying, okay? You use both your tongue and your lips to lie. That's what he's saying here. They work together. 
And I do just want to throw in here a reminder. I think this passage implicitly reminds us of the objective of the, the reality of objective truth. By that I mean, please, Christians, do not use the phrase my truth. I just think that is a garbage phrase. It is super unhelpful. You don't have your truth and I have my truth. There is truth and there is error. And we as Christians need to be super crystal clear on that. So, you know, this this idea of, well, I just need to live my truth. You leave me alone while I live my truth. That is garbage. I already said the word garbage, but maybe it emphasizes it. It's a way of rebelling against God and his reign. It's saying, I can choose what's true for me, and you choose what's true for you. And it doesn't work that way in the reality of the word of God. But maybe you are experiencing, back to on point here a little bit more, maybe you're experiencing something similar to the author here. Maybe you're being lied about at work or in a family relationship. Maybe you're being misrepresented and slandered. Maybe someone is maliciously smearing your reputation. And how do you want to respond to that? Because those are, those are not pleasant moments if you have received that at all. How should you respond to that? You want to get back to them, at them. You want justice. But I, was, I guess I just want to tell you, if something like this does happen for you down the road, if it hasn't yet, maybe if it already has, this is the truth in that situation as well, it's possible you will never be proven right in this life. Maybe you know you're right, and maybe a few other people that are close to you know that you're right as well. But you might never be proven right in this life. And I just want to urge you to be committed to doing right, even if it gets misrepresented, and even if you're never proven right by somebody else. Just because someone disagrees with you or lies about you doesn't mean you were wrong. But on the other side, just because someone agrees with you doesn't prove you were right. What really matters is what God says. What somebody else says pales in comparison, right? The whole world can be lying about you. You know you're right because you know what the Word of God says. And so as long as you know you have God on your side, that makes a majority. And who cares what everybody else says? But you need to be right before God. You need to have a clear conscience before God. Because what people say pales in comparison with what God says. He judges accurately on the basis of reality. He knows your heart. He knows what you've said. He knows what you've done. So trust in him. Maybe your distress is altogether different than the author here. Again, his distress sure seems like people are lying about him. What's your distress? Maybe it's having a friend leave you. Having someone you were dating break up with you. Having someone you were engaged to break up with you. Having someone you're married to leave you. Maybe your distress is being stuck in life or feeling stuck. You know, like you wish you were married, but you're not. Or you wish you weren't married, but you are. Or you wish you had children, but you don't. Or you wish you don't have children, but you do. You wish you had a different job, or you wish you didn't have a job at all. Or we could go on and on. But the bottom line is you feel stuck. And it's distressing, and every day is dark and difficult. Maybe you're behind financially, and the way out seems impossible, seems insurmountable. 
But the author was in distress. He was in difficult circumstances. But a second aspect of what we need to notice about this man is he knew the Lord. He knew exactly where he needed to go when he was in distress. He knew that God is there, first of all. He also knew that God listened, which is why he says, I called to the Lord and he answered me. He knew that God is the God who hears. And so whatever he poured out from his heart to the Lord, whether this was out loud or just in his heart, doesn't matter. He knew the Lord listened. Do you know the Lord well enough that you can go to him in your time of distress and know that he is going to hear and that he's going to care? This idea that the Lord delivered him is like that feeling that we're all going to have about two months from now where it's another gray day and it gets dark at five o'clock and it just all feels bad and it all just feels discouraging and then you wake up one day and the sun is out and you hear a bird singing and the sky is blue as far as you can see and you're just like, yes, this is why I moved to Florida. Oh wait, uh, all I'm saying is there is brightness. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And this guy knew that. Even in his distress, he knew there was something bright because the Lord was with him. We don't know how the Lord answered him, though. He says that he did. In my distress, I called and the Lord answered. What did that answer look like? Because sometimes we say, see, I prayed something and God didn't answer my prayer. And my response would be, oh, yeah, he did. He just didn't do it the way you thought he was going to or the way you prayed that he would. Maybe you prayed that you would get married, and he hasn't answered that prayer, so on. One way that we could see that the Lord, one possibility is that the Lord proved the psalmist to be right. Maybe that's how the Lord answered him. It actually doesn't sound like that's the case. I probably would delete that option. Another option is that the Lord took him away from his enemy. Maybe. Kind of depends on how many people were lying about him, I guess. I think a third option one of my personal favorites of my three options that I came up with myself, is that the Lord changed his perspective. The Lord didn't change what was going on around him, the circumstances, but he changed his heart. And he's like, okay, I can survive. People might get me wrong. People might misrepresent me. But that's okay because I know God and God knows me. And that's God changing your perspective, which he does through, your, through his word. What she does through you reading the word and listening to good songs and coming to worship services and getting coffee or tea with friends and on and on. This is how the Lord changes our perspective. And when you think about these first two verses, which we'll move on in just a moment, but how would Jesus have sung these two words, these two verses, I should say, in his last days before he was crucified? Have you ever thought of it that way? I think as we work through these Psalms of Ascent, we should ask, how would Jesus have sung this song? Surely there was some tune that people knew how to sing this song to. If you want uh, modern renditions of what each psalm listens would sound like, you can obviously change the tune if you want, but a group called Poor Bishop Hooper, which I think is like a husband and a wife. Does that sound right, Eddie? So they wrote, I think they wrote a tune for each of the 150 psalms. So you could look that up on your phone when you go home. The cross enables you to endure lies and slander because Jesus endured lies and slander. You think about his last couple of days and the lies that were told about him 
in the ways he was misrepresented. And what did he do? Like a sheep before the slaughter, he just kept his mouth shut and he endured the shame of the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. And if you're here today, you've never been to Brander before or you've never heard the gospel, which is just a word we use to talk about the good news of the Bible teaches us about how we can be right with God. Maybe you're not familiar with the gospel. We want to urge you to let God speak to you through his word in such a way that you're compelled to say, I know I'm wrong. I know I have done terrible things. And even if no one else knows about it, that doesn't matter if it was behind closed doors or whatever else. I know I was wrong and I need God to forgive me. The gospel is your answer. And if you have questions about how to receive the benefits of the gospel, forgiveness, a clear conscience, and so forth, we would love to talk to you. Just catch any of us after the service, and we'd love to talk to you about that. We want to urge you to believe in Christ as the one who enables you to endure lies and slander. So trust the Lord for deliverance. That's what you should do. In your distress, turn to the Lord. Trust him for deliverance. Secondly, wait for him to bring justice. That's the message of verses 3 and 4, I believe. Wait for him to bring justice. What shall be given to you? Here he seems to be talking, not to you particularly, not to his original readers. He seems to be talking to the liars, the people who are slandering him or misrepresenting him. What's he say to them? What should be given to you? Kind of like the emperor's new groove idea of like, how shall I do it? No, how is God going to do it, is the question he's asking here. What should be done to you, you deceitful tongue, you liar? That goes back to the person in verse 2, the person who's misrepresenting him. What's he going to get? Which is the question that you want to know sometimes too, when someone is being a jerk to you. How is he going to get his punishment or judgment for what he's doing? Here's a couple options. Sharp arrows would do the trick. This guy lived in an era where they didn't have guns. So you shot arrows. Or maybe some glowing coals of the broom tree. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a broom tree. I don't know what that looks like. So I Googled a guy today who works for the Forest Department of the United States, and he basically Googled it for me. I, I should say I texted him, not Googled him. I, I texted him and asked him, what's a broom tree? And what are these glowing coals? And I will say, I already had my notes written. I just wanted to see if he had an extra tidbit. And he didn't. He said, well, thanks to AI, this is what I found. So, all that to say, I think what this probably means is, if you have a fireplace, you know this. Some wood burns a lot faster than other wood. Some wood's going to take a lot longer. The coals are going to get a lot hotter. My guess, taking a guess, is that broom tree wood burns for a super long time and gets stinking hot. And this guy's thinking of somehow pouring a bucket of those coals on this guy who's lying about him. I think that's what he's saying. And you think, I thought we were Christians here. Like, this doesn't sound super Christian-y. And all I would say is, as one theologian put it, the king will defeat all his adversaries. The Lord is the king we're talking about here. And the burning coals mentioned here are but a hint at the fate that awaits those who are for war in spite of the fact that Yahweh's representative spoke peace to them. Maybe this guy's getting lied about because he's telling the truth. Kind of a Psalm 2 idea. Like, 
bow before the king. He rules. Somebody says, I don't like that. And so I'm going to misrepresent you. And this theologian is saying, you know, this guy's for peace. He's preaching the truth. And people don't like it. Sharp arrows and glowing coals of a broom tree even are nothing compared to the judgment that they're going to receive on the last day because they have chosen to live in their rebellion rather than in submission to God. So I think the fact that you're here hearing this today is a gift to you so that you will not be the recipient of sharp arrows from the Lord and broom tree coals that are glowing from the Lord. How so? Like by you hearing this warning, you've been given fair warning from the Lord in this passage, you can turn to the Lord and you can be rescued from a fate far worse than what this passage even describes. The cross enables you, though, to wait for justice. This guy, in other words, is not sitting there going, I'm going to be the one pulling the bow back. I'm going to be the one shoveling those coals at you. He's waiting for the Lord to do it. And Romans 12 summarizes what I think is this psalmist's perspective. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap, guess what? You will heap burning coals on his head. By being nice to him, you're making him feel guilty for being a jerk to you. That's the Christian response. And we wait for the Lord, the one who gets vengeance, the one who makes it so we don't have to avenge ourselves. We wait for him to do his work on the last day. The cross enables you to wait for justice. So in your distress, turn to the Lord. That means... First of all, in verses 1 and 2, trust him for deliverance. Second, wait for him to bring justice. That's verses 3 and 4. And third, verses 5 through 7, live peaceably as much as possible. And that's in parentheses in my notes. If I were taking notes, that's the way I would do it for you as well. Live peaceably as much as possible. Because we all know we actually can't make everybody else be at peace with us. Like, you can try. I think you should try, especially if they live in your home or are members of your church with you. Try really hard in both of those situations. But you still can't make the other person be peaceable, even if you're for peace. This is the idea in Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It sounds to me like when Paul wrote Romans 12, he had Psalm 120 on his mind. I'm taking a guess. I've never heard anybody else say that, so grain of salt there. Nonetheless, I think what verses 5 through 7 are saying is, there are people who are against me, excuse me, even though I'm trying really hard to be at peace with them. They're at war with me, and I'm like, guys, we don't have to be like this. You don't have to lie about me. Verse 5 mentions two places, and the only thing you need to know about these two places is that they're nowhere near each other. Both were far away from Jerusalem. This psalm is written for people who are going to Jerusalem from all over Israel for a pilgrimage, or from all over, say, Babylon to get back to Israel after exile, and they hear these two places, they say, one of those is really far north. 
and one of those is really far south, it sounds like these two places are just ways of saying, I'm far away from God. I'm far away from the people of God. So to be in Meshech or Kedar is to be away from God and God's people. Metaphorically or literally, you're away from where you want to be. We want to know that we belong with God and with his people. But when I'm under this kind of distress, it feels like I'm not anywhere close to God. That's what he's saying here. And that this environment is difficult, but I'm going to pursue peace anyway. That's what he says in verse 6 and 7. I'm living with people from Meshach and Kedar, so to speak. And I think he's just saying, like, fellow Israelites who are being a jerk and lying. I've had my dwelling. I've lived with these people who hate peace. I'm for peace. I'm trying to be the peaceable person here. But these people are for war. This is not working out. And I want to pause and ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you were for peace, maybe in your family, or maybe here in the church, and the other person was for war? Someone else has sinned against you with what they've said, in other words. How should you respond to that? What I'm trying to put on your radar is the reality of sin between individuals. We all know our sin is first and foremost between between us and God. But it's also possible for someone on one side of a church aisle to sin against somebody else on the other side of the church aisle, and that has nothing to do with like aisles in Washington. I'm just saying, like, you say mean things about each other, and you do mean things to each other, and you feel offended, whether you should have or not, because sometimes we take offense at things that actually weren't intended to be offensive. But how should you respond when someone has sinned against you? You should go talk to them. And you should tell them, you have sinned against me. Let me tell you why. And you have Bible for all of this. Okay, I would go prepared and I would go peaceably. Be for peace, as he says here in verse 7. But what about when someone has sinned against you? So, it's not, uh, so I should say, when, when, when you have sinned against them, ideally, you realize you sinned against them, and so you start walking over in their direction. And at the same time, they're walking toward you because they're coming to say, you sinned against me. So I'm saying, I sinned, and they're saying, you sinned, and you're meeting in the middle and saying, oh yeah, I'm so glad we talked because I need to confess my sin to you. And that guy says, I'm so glad you came because I was about to rebuke you for your sin against me. All I'm saying is there is a biblical way. This is from like Matthew 5, Matthew 18, Luke 17. I'm happy to give you specific verses when we're done. But this is how the New Testament says to deal with conflict, particularly in the church, when someone sins against another person. And maybe there are going to be times in even a church context where you are the one who is for peace in verse 7, but somebody else is like, yeah, right. You said fill in the blank, and I'm never going to forgive you of that. I just heard on the radio in a totally different situation yesterday, somebody saying, forgiveness is a choice, and I choose not to forgive you. Ugh! Like, and again, a very different situation, and I, to some extent, understand what the lady was saying. All I'm saying is, in a church context, we don't really have that right to be like, nah, Jesus forgives me, but I'm not forgiving you. I said a few weeks ago, you are the most forgiven person in the world. 
So you need to forgive other people to the same extent that you have been forgiven. What I'm saying is that the cross enables you to pursue peace. The cross enables you to endure lies and slander. The cross enables you to wait for justice. And the cross enables you to pursue peace. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We live in a world filled with misery and heartache and suffering. My friend who I talked to on the phone is still enduring the ups and downs of that uh, broken relationship with his wife. That pastor in small town Louisiana is still a widower. His wife's not coming back. Those distressing situations have not changed and the circumstances may never change in this life. There's no guarantee, there's no actual like human reason to think either one of those is ever going to change. But that doesn't mean that those two people can't call on the Lord in the time of distress and find grace for today. Find the Lord to be a refuge in their storm. And you, excuse me, you can turn to the Lord in your distress as well. I want to urge you to do that. Sometimes that simply means trusting him for grace for today. I have problems that don't really have an end in sight. Like there's no like, oh, well, when we get across that line, they're gone. Like, I, I just don't think that's ever going to be the case. But I can't worry about what life's going to be like a year from now or 10 years from now. Like, that is a waste of my time. What I can do is say, Lord, it's a new day, and this is stinking hard. And I need more grace right now. And the Lord will give it. Even if all it means is you do the next right thing. Like put the dishes in the dishwasher even though somebody's crying or whatever else. That's the next right thing. And the Lord can give you the grace for that. So don't worry about later. Trust the Lord for now. Maybe your cloud of depression will finally lift. That would be great. I pray it does. Maybe it won't. But the Lord is more than enough for you. And if you need help with that, we want to help you with that too. Maybe that diagnosis will be as bad as you feared when you have that call with your doctor. Maybe the Lord won't answer those prayers in the way you have been praying. But the Lord will still be present to answer you. He is the God who hears. Won't you turn to him in your distress? Let's pray together. Lord, we prayed at the beginning of this service in form of a song that Emmanuel, God with us, would come and rescue captives, rescue people who are in darkness. Maybe there are people like that in this room right now, and we ask that your grace would sustain them. And that these words that we have meditated on today, written some thousands of years ago for our benefit that these words would serve our hearts well and that we would indeed run to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.